millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Government senator forced to sleep in his car due to lack of hotel rooms in Dublin. Senator Eugene Murphy shares his experience. Head for home uh, pretty late in the evening and um, unfortunately, you know, getting very, very tired. Uh, would pull in on the forecourt of a filling station and slept there until morning and then returned back to Dublin at an early station the next morning. Monkeypox, 36 more cases detected in the UK as health officials warn the virus could become endemic in Europe. Professor Luke O'Neill joins me shortly. Partygate pictures emerge showing Boris Johnson drinking at number 10 during lockdown. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is facing yet more Partygate questions this evening around breaches of COVID lockdown rules. ITV News has obtained four images showing Mr Johnson raising a glass at a leaving party. It says they were taken on the 13th of November 2020 when the country was in strict lockdown. The broadcaster said the new photos cast fresh doubt on Boris Johnson's claim that he was unaware of rule breaking in Downing Street during the pandemic. A little earlier I spoke to journalist Ender Brady and I asked him to describe what we see in the pictures. Well, several people have their faces blurred out. They are members of staff at Downing Street, civil servants. But one person you can see quite clearly is the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. You can see him there holding a, a glass. It seems to be sparkling wine. Um, there's lots of bottles of alcohol dotted around with some hand sanitizer as well. And he appears to be toasting someone. Now, look, you can see he's in full flow. Apparently, he gave a speech. And this apparently happened November 13th, 2020. England had just gone into the most strictest of lockdowns. It was the second lockdown. So gatherings were not allowed amongst people who were not members of the same household. Um, and here we have it. So this was apparently farewell drinks for Lee Kane, who was Boris Johnson's director of communications Previously, a journalist with the Daily Mirror, he was the guy who used to dress up in the chicken soup, believe it or not. Um, Boris Johnson made him his director of communications. He was a popular member of staff and the prime minister apparently dropped in on the leaving drinks. Conservatives now are saying he only stayed for 10 minutes. But nevertheless, he was there. He was drinking. It was a gathering, stroke party. He's in a lot of bother. Were the Met Police aware of this incident, this event, and had they seen these photographs before they concluded their investigation? 
So the word coming from conservative sources is that, yes, they were, that they had access to these photographs. 126 people in total, 126 fines in total from the various different breaches of lockdown regulations at number 10 Downing Street, making it the single most fined address in the whole of the UK for COVID breaches. So that in itself is staggering. Boris Johnson only got one fine, one fine for his wife, Carrie, as well. But the problem he has now is that senior conservatives inside his own party are saying that he must go. Um, it's a big week. We will get the Sue Gray report possibly tomorrow, maybe Wednesday. And it depends on how scathing she is in her report. And other politicians from other parties now calling for the independent police uh, watchdog to get involved and look at why Boris Johnson did not get more fines. But the pictures are quite damning. They really are. Uh, what have Downing Street said this evening about this photograph? So they're sticking to their line that the police have investigated and that there were no fines given to the Prime Minister and they're saying that he was only there for 10 minutes. But it's 10 minutes too long. So the one fine he did get was for the birthday party when his friends claim he was ambushed by a cake. That was the phrase they used. Downing Street sticking to their line saying that this was uh, a work gathering he only popped in for 10 minutes, but there are other reports saying that he instigated it. And yes, he was only there for 10 minutes, but he was the one who was pouring drinks. And if staff see someone as senior as the prime minister urging them on to have a few drinks, what do you think is going to happen? You mentioned, Enda, that some members of the Conservative Party, some senior members have said that he is in big trouble, that he has to go. But we've been here before, haven't we? We've had senior Conservative members saying you know, Boris, your time is up, get out, and he hasn't. So will he on this occasion? I don't think he'll go over this. I mean, he's not the resigning type. I've known him a very, very long time, two decades plus and more, and he's not going to resign. Look, what will happen is Sue Gray will publish her report, Boris Johnson will go to Parliament, he will apologise again for anyone who's offended by what he has done. He will keep reiterating that there's a cost of living crisis, there's war going on in Ukraine and he's getting on with the job. You, I can almost write his speech for him right now. That is exactly what he will say at some point this week. There might be a job for you in Downing Street yet. Uh, Andrew Brady, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time. Now, in other news, the World Health Organization has warned that the number of monkeypox cases could see an increase in the coming days and weeks. Well, joining me now for more on this story is immunologist Luke O'Neill and political reporter at the Irish Independent, Gabia Gadavetskiacha. You're both very welcome Hi, to here. the programme. Uh, Luke, I'm going to start with you. What is monkeypox? Yes, it's another virus, of course, which is why we're so tuned into it in the pox virus family, first of all. It's like, a bit like smallpox. I guess, and it's a very rare disease overall. Even in Africa, where it's endemic, it's still pretty rare. But now there are these cases. cases. I think 14, 14 countries, countries now, now have reported cases, and today 36 extra cases in, in England, basically. So it's something we're watching closely. Um, do we assume that there are cases in Ireland at this point, or that there will be cases in Ireland? There might be. I guess, none at the moment, I guess. But it's spreading. You know, it is transmitting between people. And the question is, would it spread into many different countries? We'll wait and see if it comes to Ireland. It's quite hard to catch, actually, to be honest. Very close contacts needed between, say, two, a person, someone who's infected and someone who isn't for a prolonged period of time. Not like COVID by any means, which is much more, you know, contagious. It's not the first time, though, that we have seen uh, monkeypox come to Europe. It has been here before. 
what's new is it is the number of cases and how quickly this seems to be yeah. transmitting. Yeah, there were single-digit cases. In the UK, for instance, there was, there was one or two cases in 2018. In the US in 2003, there were 70 cases reported, you see. So we've seen it around the world in the past. What's happening now is lots of countries are reporting it. Something's happening. The mystery is, how are people catching it, actually? The first case was May 7th. That was someone who, someone who came back from Nigeria, where it is endemic. They brought it back to the UK. But many cases, it's hard to track where it came from. And hence, people are slightly concerned because of that reason. Um, who is at risk um, of this virus? I mean, is it any more serious for children to catch it or pregnant women to catch it? No, anybody who would be in close contact with someone who is infected. Now, infected means you have these pus-filled sores, like we see images of these. We? They, they have blister fluid, which is, which is full of virus, basically. If you're in close contact with someone with these blisters, that, that, then you're at risk of catching it, basically. Or it's someone's quite nasty in, looking, isn't it? It's a nasty disease, yeah. You'll, you'll have it for two, three, four weeks. Your skin will be covered in these pox, pox, you know, these pox vesicles, we call them on your skin and so on. And then you'll feel pretty feverish and sick, you see. So it's pretty nasty. But most people get over it, you see. And it's seen as not that, not that dangerous it is. The, the mortality rate for the, for the one that's there at the moment is less than 1%. It could be as low as 0.1%, you see. So it's not seen as a hugely serious disease for the moment. So what happens then if you contract it? Is it the type of thing that you just deal with at home? Do you need to quarantine? You, Is it, you know, back to contacting close contacts again? Yes, yeah, you isolate if you have the, the pock marks on you, basically, they're very infectious, stay home, basically, you know. And remember, not like COVID, you will spread it if you're symptomatic. Of course, COVID, there was asymptomatic spread, which might be very difficult to catch, you see. This one, it's only people with the, the symptoms that spread it, you see. So if anybody with symptoms should stay home. Now, interestingly, there's a vaccine. The smallpox vaccine works against, it's in the same family as smallpox. So that, that vaccine is available, you see. And as an antiviral, a drug called T-pox will kill the virus. So again, unlike COVID, we have the weapons already, the, the, the vaccines and, and the antivirals to, to, uh, to deploy against it. So who is it uh, affecting in the main then? It's mainly young men at the moment, it turns out, they reckon. And it looks like sexual contact is close contact, but anybody can catch it. It doesn't matter who you are. Any kind of close contact means you can probably catch it off someone else. The current cases are, are is, is in men who have sex with men, they call them basically. You know, they seem to be a group who, who have caught it initially. But remember, anybody can catch it through close contact. And any understanding why that demographic is appears to be more impacted or more affected by this? No, that, that's been examined closely now. The track, trying to track it and try to figure out what's happened here. It could have been a few cases in, in that community, maybe, and it begins to spread there, a bit like HIV began, in that, and then anybody can get HIV, you see. So, so sexual contact is, is obviously close contact. That's one reason why it can spread. But it's not a sexually transmitted no, infection. No, it's not an STI no, at all. No, no, it can be spread through sex, because that's close contact, but any kind of close contact will spread this disease. So what can you possibly do then to avoid it? Or is the likelihood that very, very few of us will catch it? Well, the European Centre for Disease Control tonight said it's very unlikely it'll spread in the general population, basically, because it is quite hard to catch, first of all, you see. Secondly, it's only people with these symptoms that can spread it. So, of course, that means you can avoid people so that they can stay home, whatever it might be, you know. So the chance of it becoming like a huge big thing like COVID is extremely unlikely is the current view. But they haven't been able to control it in the UK at the moment. It, it is spreading there. I know the numbers are small, but, you know, they've yeah. gone from a handful of cases to, you know, I think 50 or 60 cases at this point in quite a short period of time. They have, but it's inclined to be self-limiting. In previous outbreaks in Africa, for example, it'll last for a few months and then goes away because people isolate themselves when they have the symptoms, you see, and gradually it goes away, you know. Now we're seeing it at slight upsides, but tiny numbers of cases, it's extremely rare. Like 56 people out of what is a 55 million, that's a very rare disease, basically. You know? But again, it's being monitored, like any infectious disease is being watched now. I guess for me, it's one for the scientists and doctors
doctors to keep an eye on, not the general public. Of course, we're all hyper about viruses, aren't we? You know, if this had happened before the pandemic, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the news, I bet you, for example. You know, it's simply because, oh, we're, we're, we're obsessed with this kind of thing. I did wonder that because I was thinking back to some of the you know, issues that we've covered in the programme in the last couple of months, and I was thinking of these sort of rare disease, I think of hepatitis, for example, in children, which, you know, um, we were speaking about in the programme last week, and I was wondering, are there more of these diseases making the headlines because we are that much more aware of viruses and perhaps frightened of viruses than we were in the past? I, I think so. Yes, this massive attention. The big fear we'll have COVID again, say, or this will be like another type of viral disease that lockdown has to happen. That is in our minds, isn't it? Hence the media order. It's understandable. There's concern, isn't there? You know. But at the moment, as I say, it's a very rare disease. It isn't as lethal by any means as COVID. But scientific. COVID or anything. Well, scientifically, it's a fascination, let's put it that way, because it's a DNA virus, first of all. They don't mutate anywhere like the RNA viruses like COVID, for example. So the chance it's, it's, it's a mutant version is slim. It's, it's a possibility, but it's a very slim chance that there's, there's a new form of monkeypox that's much more dangerous. That's unlikely at the moment, which you see from what we know. So you would say the message to the general public, don't be worried about it? Don't worry at all at the moment. Now, we'll keep an eye on it, remember. Let's see if it does come to Ireland. If it does come to Ireland, then we might ramp it up. There's, there's a special uh, group now has been uh, assembled by the HSE just to keep an eye on this, just to see what happens. But for the general public, leave it up to the doctors and the scientists for the moment. Let, let's see what happens in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, Gabby, are the government worried about this? So I asked a senior government source that very same question this evening and I was told no. Um, there is a team that's been set up within the HSC to keep an eye on it. It's an incident management team um, and also the HPSC is also keeping an eye on it and reporting back. But we've got no suspected cases and we've got no confirmed cases of the monkeypox virus in the country at the moment. It's not um, something that the government is fretting about. You know, I think even across Europe, Compared to COVID, of course, it's nowhere near as contagious. It's not an airborne virus. Um, as Professor O'Neill was saying there, you have to be literally skin-on-skin skin contact with somebody who's got um, the, the disease. So it's not an issue for the government. They're not overly worried about it. They're keeping an eye on it, but it's not of concern. OK, I want to move on to COVID. I didn't ever want to say that word again, but uh, Professor O'Neill, we are hearing about this new strain of Omicron BA4 and BA Five. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, they're kind of siblings of Omicron, first of all, very closely related to Omicron, but they are more transmissible. So every time we get a new version of Omicron, it's increased transmission, basically, maybe 10, 15% more transmissible. What that means is it spreads more readily. And BA4 could become the dominant COVID you know, strain in Ireland if this continues, basically. But is very it more or less severe? No, that's very important. It's no more severe than Omicron itself. Uh, secondly, the good news is the vaccines are holding up, you see, which is great to see. Now, now, it is dodging antibodies slightly, and antibodies are a key part of the immune system, of course, but your T-cells are there to defend you. And that's why T-cells evolved in some ways, just in case viruses could dodge antibodies. And the T-cells are holding up against BA4, which is good to see. What? do you think is going to happen in the autumn winter? I mean, do you think we will have to deal with another COVID surge? We will, yeah. The cases are bound to go up. This is a virus that loves the indoors, basically. We all move back indoors again. We'll see an increase in cases. Now, the hope again is that we will turn into hospitalizations. Is that real hope? The question is, will the vaccines begin to wane by then? Mm. And with a booster campaign, we need to possibly, we need boosters in the autumn. That's one thing, you see. A booster for all? P possibly, certainly down through the ages. Again, remember, if you're, if you're young, it's a very benign disease, you see. You might ramp it down to over 60s, over 50s, just in case, maybe. But that's not clear. We may not need to. Remember, what you have a great thing now is the combination of vac being vaccinated. It's essentially vaccinated. But if you're not vaccinated, BA4 is really bad, remember? So take the vaccine to stop BA4 infecting you, first of all. Secondly, if you've been vaccinated and you get infected, that's a triple whammy. 
you know, your immune system is really well trained then to fight any variant almost. And many people in Ireland, as we know, had the vaccine and got infected, you see. And they should have a very strong immune response as the winter comes on. But again, something to watch. We, we don't fully know mm. if, I'm, if I'm correct in what I'm saying there. At the moment, that would be the opinion. It might change. We'll see what happens in the autumn. Because potentially there could be another variant, another that's, that's strain. That's the only concern. Yeah, an, an extra variant might come along. And again, we can follow that closely. We can track it. You know, that's great. We can all over the world. Now there's monitoring happening, you see, and we can track this virus now. But again, a watching brief is the idea in the coming months, really. What should the government be doing now to plan or prepare for that potential surge of the winter? Yeah, they, well, they're, getting, anything? they're getting ready. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's, there's, there's lots of meetings. NIAC are there, our immunisation advisory committee, for instance, you know. There's a new advisory group as well. So that's all happening, you know, to prepare us for the coming months, basically. So the government is very much on top of this with all these, these advisory bodies. And it's very international now. The EU are all over this as well, getting ready for the, for the autumn in Europe as well. So loads of stuff happening behind the scenes. Even though we do now have vacancies for our CMO and our deputy CMO. Let's hope they fill those quickly. <laughs> I guess they must be recruiting as we speak because we need, we need those posts to be filled. That's the leadership, isn't it, that we need? I'm sure they'll fill those posts, by the way. And that quickly. is important, isn't it? Very important, yeah. We gotta... uh, can you give us an update, Gabby, on filling those uh, posts? There certainly has been no update as of yet. I mean, we do know that certainly there was indications that Dr. Hollihan would stay on for longer um, because of Dr. Glynn being the deputy CMO. He, he's going to be leaving um, fairly soon. So there was indications that Dr. Hollihan would stay on a little bit longer. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very fair to say that, you know, it is and the expectation within government that COVID will surge again in the autumn and in the winter. And I think that's something that the government's very conscious of. So going into that season, you know, especially with our hospital system creaking at the seams that, it, you know, pre-COVID, that it's going to be really, really important that they have some sort of a plan in place. I think NIAC are considering, um, you know, that booster jab for under 65s, but there's not an expectation that the green light is going to be gotten from them anytime soon. It'll probably be towards the end of the summer and into the autumn months, if even it comes at all. It was interesting to um, read that letter from Dr. Tony Houlihan um, relating to this new strain. He said, look, there still is a significant COVID-19 burden on our acute hospital service, although it is lessening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think COVID has fallen to the back of many people's minds. I mean, you know, even the daily figures are not being published anymore now. You know, they kind of come out of batches during the week. The other day I was speaking to somebody, they had to open up their COVID tracker app, the yellow app, to see how many cases there was that day. You know, it's, it's certainly not a part of our lives. But I think, unfortunately, as we go into the autumn, it'll be probably our hospital system that lets us down once again and that we're going to see that burden. But even with the new variant, I suppose the very important thing about it is to see what effect it has on people and are they getting significantly more sick because that's what's going to put us in trouble. Do you worry about that at all, uh, Professor, that we have switched off our mindset to COVID? It's human nature. We're, we're sick of it. I, even I got sick of it. To be honest. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for <laughs> Not a really, second. No. I, my lab still works on it. We've got three projects on COVID at the moment, you see, so we're still working on it. But it's understandable, isn't it? But again, we've got to keep an eye on it because the, the risk of a new variant, the risk of the vaccine waning in the under 60s is there. That might mean moderate disease, not severe disease, but that's still pretty debilitating. You know, and some of those end up in hospital. With moderate not mild disease. anymore. Is that what you mean? There's a, there's a risk of moderate uh, illness if your vaccine isn't quite. If you know, the vaccine is going off the boil slightly, now, now it'll still protect you from severe disease. But there could be an increased risk of moderate disease, which means being out of work for two, three, four weeks. A certain percent might end up in hospital. That's the unknown. That that moderate level. We're confident severe disease should be less of a risk from what we know now. You see. So, but still, that's something to watch. The, the, the numbers of people getting moderate disease. Yeah, it's a real uncertainty then coming into autumn winter, isn't there? Well, well there's always been uncertainties. Any infectious disease has uncertainties. We're well used to this in this business, in a sense, and you know, this is no different. And as long as we're smart and we keep an eye on it and keep the ship steady, we should be all right, I think. 
All right, we're going to leave it uh, there. My thanks to Professor Luke O'Neill. Gabby will be staying with me. And after the break, Senator Eugene Murphy on why he had to spend a night sleeping in his car. Back. Now, a government senator has hit the headlines today saying he was forced to sleep in his car on two occasions recently because he could not find a hotel room in Dublin for less than €200. Euro. A little earlier, I spoke to Fianna Fáil Senator for Ross Common, Eugene Murphy, and I began by asking him about the circumstances that led to him having to sleep in his car. Well, first of all, Kira, I heard this uh, story being referenced in a number of the paper reviews on several radio stations this morning on my way to Dublin. And certainly I could identify with that story very much uh, from another Oireachtas member. So basically over the past two months on two occasions, I've had to, um, you know, hit for home late at night uh, on the basis I could not get a hotel in Dublin. Now I'm almost seven years in the Oireachtas and this has never happened before. So I would uh, take two... Um, down the N4 and onto the N5, uh, down to get back to, to Roscommon. And uh, just, you know, you'd be overcome with tiredness uh, uh, halfway down. And on two occasions, I pulled in at the forecourt of a filling station uh, on the bypass near Mullingar uh, and just slept it off till four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then I had to, I suppose, be ready to come back into the city to avoid the traffic. So look, it's no big deal. It just happened to me. It's just the way things are at the moment. And it is very, very difficult to get a hotel in Dublin City right now. And Senator, did you have a blanket or a pillow? Were you comfortable? Were you able to sleep? Well, I certainly wasn't comfortable. And God help anybody that ever has to sleep in a car. We've had some unfortunate stories over the years about unfortunate people in, in terrible housing situations had to take the sleeping in a car. No, but usually a jacket or a coat over me. Just put your seat down. Uh, you will wake, you will turn around several times uh, during the evening but or during the night. But uh, no, you, you just look at, you just bring a bearage and, and then deal with it and that's it. Bring us through your attempts, uh, Senator, to find accommodation in Dublin. Okay, well, um, it would be um, not alone myself, but my secretary would spend hours... Um, you know, trying to make um, a reservation in a hotel. Uh, we would certainly contact eight or nine hotels. Uh, and in, in the past two months, uh, it's just been impossible. Now, just to give you an example of that, last Tuesday night uh, was the first night in three weeks that I got a, a, a break in Dublin that I could stay overnight. Uh, and I asked the hotel there, would they um, be able to book me in for this week and next week? And there was no chance of doing that. Uh, but I was glad to get that nice last Tuesday night because it certainly was uh, it was a help to me, and I, I felt very refreshed on on Wednesday morning when I got up. So look, it's just it's just a constant um, barrier trying to get a hotel at the moment uh, in the city. But I have to say today, once the story has gone out, a number of people involved in B and B and another number of people have contacted me to say never be stuck for a night or two. Uh, we will we will ensure you have a bed, but. Uh, Definitely in relation to the hotels, it's extremely difficult. But one point on that, Kira... Uh, sorry, Senator, did you not consider at the time, rather than sleeping in your car, to contact B&Bs or guest houses or perhaps hotels a little outside of the city centre? 
Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. Now, some B&Bs I would have made contact with, one or two that I would have known, and basically because it was so late at night to, to get a, a, a reservation, they weren't interested. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Some of the hotels, you know, that you would try to book in and down the country are also very expensive. And on principle, even though we get a very generous allowance, on principle, I will not pay over €200 euro for a bed and hotel at night. I just think it's very excessive over that. And it is taxpayers' money. So, look at, uh, yes, that's, that was uh, a consideration, but certainly some of the hotels outside Dublin uh, were, were, were really expensive. But also, I know some of my colleagues um, who have spoken to had to travel as far as Mullingar uh, to get a hotel. They were successful in getting a hotel, but they, they certainly couldn't get anything around the city. But just one interesting point, Kira. I, I was just doing my own bit of research on this in recent weeks, wondering how this could be. And I found out that in some of the hotels I was back mingling with people and I found that uh, very few, if any, Ukrainians in some of those hotels. But I did notice a lot of tourists and a lot of people doing business from other parts of the world. So there is certainly a plus in this in terms of our economy. But, you know, uh, definitely it's a situation now at the moment of supply and demand. Uh, and uh, demand is way out, uh, stretching out, uh, stretching supply. So, Senator, did you expect you might have to do this again? Well, look, I have some very, very generous offers at the moment. I mean, I was reluctant to talk about it, to be honest, because there are people in, in very, very difficult housing circumstances at the moment. And look, at whatever challenges I have and some of my colleagues, we can get over this um, and we will get over it. And it's up to us to sort it. It's not for me to be asking the minister or the department. It's something for me to sort out. But look, I have uh, had a number of um, um, contacts from people today around the city, uh, B&Bs as well. So I think we will be able to work something out. 
All right. Um, just a final question. Uh, on Twitter today, there wasn't a huge amount of sympathy for you, uh, Senator. A lot of people saying, look, you could well afford with the subsidy of €120 a night to subsidise a hotel room and pay a bit more and not sleep in your car. That, that, well, look, I don't be surprised uh, <laughs> at Twitter and, and, and people that, that, that make comments at times. But look, it's not an issue about the cost of the hotel as such to me. It's just that uh, a lot of people are caught by this. Um, and uh, as I said, we can handle it. We can sort it out. Uh, I'm not worried about it as such. But look, um, we, we, will, we, will, we will be OK. It's all right. All right. OK. Uh, Senator Eugene Murphy, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined by Irish independent political reporter Gabia Gadevextia, Minister of State in the Department of Finance, Sean Fleming, and into leader Padder Tobin. You are both very welcome to the programme. Uh, Sean Fleming, do you have sympathy for Eugene Murphy? Well, it's news to me. I hadn't heard about this until today and I wasn't aware of it ever happening at all. And essentially what he's saying is he's working very late. He couldn't get a hotel in town. He started to drive home. He got tired when he got to Mullingar and he pulled in and slept in the car in a filling station, which was the right thing to do if you're tired. And I actually think he did the right thing rather than continue driving and maybe have a crash. So from that point of view, but the, the availabilities of hotels are very difficult. And I know if you're just looking for a single night midweek, it can be very difficult. But it's a fairly unique situation. I wasn't aware of this ever happening before now. And he said it wasn't just him. It's not a one-off situation. He said he knows of a TD uh, in Leinster House who has slept in his car in the car park of Leinster House yeah. because he either couldn't find a room or couldn't find a room that he thought was affordable. And I think affordability is the issue here. Yeah, well, I don't think that should come into it because they've mentioned already... TDs or senators get an overnight allowance. And if they have to top it up out of their own money to balance, so be it would be my view. Um, but I do think in the circumstances, he didn't have a room booked and he was driving home and he was tired. He was right to pull in sleep for a few hours from a road safety point of view. The discomfort to the person involved is a secondary issue to road safety as far as I'm concerned. But this is not just one night, he said. Well, I don't... A couple of nights, and he said that there's other members of the Oireachtas that are having to do this. Yeah, well, I'm surprised at that too because I know, and I remember before sometimes in a busy summer season in June or July when tourism people have had to go out 20 miles from the city centre to get a room at night. I remember that happening. But so be it, and if you have to drive in an hour better than driving the whole way down to the west of Ireland in the back. Or better than sleeping in your car, It is. So you mightn't get one in Dublin City here, but you will get one within an hour of Dublin, that's for sure. Um, Padre Trubin, do you think it is acceptable that uh, a senator couldn't find a hotel room in Dublin? Last minute, um, I would add, although he did say actually he looked for a couple of weeks in advance for less than €200. Euro. Well, m my sympathies will be very clearly with the people who are forced to stay in hotel rooms every night, people who are who are homeless and can't get a house, you know, for, for, for years and who are trying to raise a family in a hotel room. My sympathy would be for the people in the defence forces who are actually sleeping in cars because they can't afford anywhere to live at all. My sympathies would be for the people who are come from Donegal and for Kerry for, for health, you know, treatments in Dublin and they need to stay overnight in Dublin and they're looking for, for accommodation and can't get it or are being gouged in terms of prices. You know, I think, to be honest... Do you think that's what's happening here? Well, I, I do. I, I know that the hotel industry uh, has uh, gouged before. I know that the whole hotel industry... When? Well, at the times where there'd be big concerts in Dublin, there would be uh, massive increases, uh, you know, in prices of hotel rooms. Unfortunately, it, it happens in Ireland. 
uh, that sometimes people see that there's a tightness between uh, supply and demand and sometimes people take advantage of that. And actually in the long term, it can actually do damage to a sector and an industry if that happens. Uh, but in this particular situation, I think that if a, a senator or TD looks 15 miles outside of Dublin uh, and had planned properly, would have found a B&B uh, or a hotel to suit their needs uh, if, if that were necessary. And, and to be honest, you know, uh, it's very hard to have prob- uh, sympathy with members of the Oireachtas when so many other people are suffering at such a level in this state. I just want to bring you the uh, Irish Hotels Federation's statement. And they weren't speaking out today, but they did send in a statement. They said they acknowledge that during busy periods, last-minute availability can be limited in Dublin. They recommend booking well in advance and shopping around to secure the best value. There's absolutely mm. no acknowledgement of price gouging there. Yeah, listen, there's there, there's no doubt that the sector is, is, is phenomenally under pressure at the moment. There are thousands of people who have come from a war-torn area uh, who are staying in, in hotels in this country at the moment. There are thousands of people who are homeless uh, who are staying at, in hotels at the moment. There is a crisis, and in the crisis, people have to hunker down and, and, and just deal with it, to so be So which is it? Are they hunkering down to deal with the crisis? I, or are they price gouging? No, I think that, that it is possible for the two things to be happening at the same time. So in other words, there is a, a major difficulty with supply of rooms at the moment, and that's because of the international crisis that exists. And actually, that supply, therefore, is, is allowing for the, the very low level of supply that's left to be charged at a higher rate. Uh, Sean Fleming, it's... Potter Dubin isn't the only one to accuse the hotels, uh, particularly those in, in Dublin, of price gouging. Senator Timmy Dooley uh, also said it in the last couple of weeks. He said uh, that price gouging was happening in Ireland and it's a big claim uh, to make. I know these businesses need to recover, but they cannot expect to recoup all their losses in the course of years because that approach will damage our image internationally. Do you agree with him? <clears throat> well, what I will say is um, prices in a lot of the hotels in Dublin have more than doubled in the last number of months. Last year, there's no problem uh, in the Oireachtas people getting accommodation for 70 or 80 euro a night. It's more than double that now. So prices have doubled now that the demand has increased. So you can call it gouging, you can call it demand, supply and demand, but it's bad ultimately for the industry uh, if Ireland gets a name of being a very expensive place to visit and the capital city in particular. And we'll end up being on a list of a, a place not to go if these prices continue. So I'd say to people, look to the long term, just not the quick gain for the next three months or whatever the case may be. Plan for next year and the following year uh, to make sure we have a good reputation of a reasonably pli- priced capital city. Is there anything the government can do about this? Because obviously you're in negotiations with the hotel sector. The backdrop uh, to this is that the government has agreed to keep the VAT for the industry at 9%. We have, to, yeah, and that runs into next year. So we're helping the industry. And I would say, I would ask the industry to reciprocate to what the Irish taxpayer is doing for the hotel industry by not... Uh, excessively increasing prices because they are getting the extended VAT reduction period and recently announced by the Minister of Finance. Um, I'm just wondering, Gabby, this isn't just uh, a Dublin problem and we mm. saw that today uh, online. A lot of people saying, you know, you talk about the capital, but look in Galway, Cork, um, any other cities in Ireland and you will find similar problems, particularly around big events, festivals, bank holiday weekends. Yeah, absolutely. And actually even myself, the last couple of weeks I was looking to book um, a weekend away somewhere else outside of Dublin and everywhere I looked, you know, be it Kilkenny or Cork, or, you know, all, all these cities, it was so expensive for a hotel. And I think, to be fair, I, I know Fianna Fáil Senator Eugene Murphy's taking a lot of flack for coming out and speaking today. I, I want, want to commend him because it is, 
you know, it's a problem that he's had and he's come out and he said it bravely. But to be fair, let's also put it into perspective into what Padre was saying. Like, you know, there are families that are sleeping in hotels because they cannot get housing. We have a serious deep-rooted housing crisis in the country. And the reality of it is that it's actually hitting the people at the top, which are the legislators. I mean, these are people that are supposed to be leading the country and they have nowhere to sleep at night because they're saying, well, I don't want to spend whatever it is, 120 euro of taxpayers' money on something like a hotel. Um, and, and they don't have solutions in the city. And it is extremely expensive in Dublin um, because we are putting people, I think rightfully, in fairness, the government is putting um, refugees into hotels. But that has meant that we have a shortage um, and that's why the prices are going up. On the other hand... We have an there affordability is, problem, I think. There is availability absolutely. if you look in And the city. there is also, um, you know, an issue around we don't have enough affordable hotels in Dublin. A lot of the hotels are luxury hotels. If you, you know, we hear these stories all the time of cultural venues, bars, clubs being turned into hotels. They're usually luxury hotels that are unaffordable for even our legislators in the, who are making, you know, a, a very good wage. So it's, I suppose, an embarrassment for the government really more so than anything else. And um, is, yes, Patrick. Yeah, just, there's also a distortion here in terms of, you know, we have tourists staying in Airbnbs, which are homes, and we have families staying in, in hotel rooms. Um, and last week, figures came out which showed that there was you know, multiples of Airbnb rentals available than there were for long-term rentals for mm. families. And, you know, that has to be solved. And we in Aintu brought about a bill <clears throat> that would ban Airbnb uh, rentals in towns of bigger than 10,000 people because that's where the pressure is, is in, in terms of, of people getting long-term rents. And that has to be resolved. Um, Sean, uh, I, mean, that, I just that, want to bring up just sorry, the point that Gabby just made. This is embarrassing for government. Yeah, two things. In relation to the Airbnb, Darrell O'Brien is working on legislation and he will have proposed it in the very immediate future on that issue. What it does show about um, the, the Dáil and the Shannon is, to me, it's not a family-friendly place to work if you're expected to be there until 11 o'clock at night and be back again the following morning. It's not family-friendly. And I think that's one of the lessons. If our timetable in the in the dawn, the Shannon was a bit more family friendly. You wouldn't have people heading away from work at 11 o'clock at night. But I don't think that's naturally the issue here, is that the problem was well, that no, he was the, happy to the, see no, over the Dublin, but there's no more <clears throat> available. Do you accept that this is, Sean Fleming, yeah. embarrassing for the government to have a senator having to sleep in his car because he said there wasn't an affordable hotel room in Dublin and he's not the only one? Yeah, I was surprised to hear that. And But what the senator did say clearly he was tired and he felt, that's the reason he pulled in. He was on the road home. So but he wanted two, to stay in Dublin and he couldn't. Fine, Are you not couldn't. embarrassed by that? Well, look, if we have to drive home, we have to drive home. I drive home every night uh, quite a distance and, and that's the way I do it. And it is, I think it's embarrassing for the Oireachtas collectively. It's not just for the government. It's embarrassing for the Oireachtas collectively that people are leaving work at 11 o'clock at night, having accommodation secured, trying to drive home a long distance and then to get tired and they have to pull in for road safety reasons. Is one of the issues here that the 120 euro subsidy is too low and you won't find a politician <clears throat> who's going to admit to that? I wouldn't support any increase in that. Um, we might be talking about pay increase later on. There was a time, and the other side of it is, um, in the last couple of years, it wasn't costing 120 euro a night. Now, maybe this year, next year, it might be over 100. So there's ups and downs when it comes to when you set a standard rate. And I wouldn't agree with um, overnight rates for across the public service, including Oireachtas members being increased at this point in time. I'm just looking at some of the Twitter comments to come in tonight, uh, Gabia. There really is 
absolutely no sympathy for him. Uh, Senator, and his salary can't pay. Who cares? Can he still claim his €120 Euro per night allowance if he slept in his car? That is a question I've seen right across social media today. Can he? Yeah, I mean, look, like, why should TDs or senators even get that €120? Euro? Like, there's other people that are in this boat also. If, if you think of, um, you know, workers who are out working all night and, and maybe they also need to get, do overnight trips somewhere else and maybe they need to get hotels and they can't afford it. Like, they're not going out and looking for taxpayer money. And I think, you know, to be fair, that all sits, you know, it's not like it sits five days a week. Um, it's usually normally yeah. only three, so, and, and, and the Shannon as well. So it's, it's not like it's an issue every single day of the week. Yes, we know politics is not family friendly. Just definitely, if you're a publicly elected representative, you're up in, the, in Dublin. I think there is a conversation there in fairness to be had. You know, is there some way we, if we can do it maybe remotely to make politics more attractive? But I think that's a separate conversation. I think that if our politicians and our legislators who make laws in the country, if they need to get a cheap hotel, they should be able to do that. Um, Padder, do you think this is evidence that we need to get more cheap hotel rooms into Dublin City? Well, I think this is, in many ways, this is the chicken come home to roost. You know, this is the lived experience of so many people. And now we have elected representatives actually being able to relate to the lived experience. So hopefully this will act as a, a, you know, a, a motivator to the elected representatives, first of all, to get accommodation into the city. Get accommodation into the city, you're freeing up thousands of hotel rooms straight away. And that's the first objective that the government should have. Sean Fleming? Yeah, we need more accommodation in the city, but, but the same rooms that were being charged at a low price last year are now at a high price. They did, and that's a, an issue we have. The COVID to deal crisis with. obviously was. was yeah, was, and you was, don't was, accept the they're just trying to recoup their serious losses. Yeah, and I think they have to take the longer term view. We're helping them with their VAT. They should reciprocate and make sure we don't get a, no, a name for an overpriced. But what city. can the government do to make them bring down the price? Well, we or can, is there anything? There isn't price control and the price of a, a hotel room. You're just going to put pressure on them. Yes. All right, we're going to have to leave it there for now. My thanks to Sean and Padder. Lots more after this break, including the fallout from the Australian election. Stay with us. Australia's Conservative Prime Minister Scott Morrison conceded election defeat on Saturday, hours after voters issued a stinging rebuke of his party's inaction on climate change. For more on this now, I'm joined from Australia by ABC News political reporter Richard Willingham. Richard, you're very welcome to the programme. I suppose before we talk about the parties that did do well in this election, we do have to look at uh, Scott Morrison. Was it a real, you know, protest vote against the the style of politics, perhaps, that he has personified over the last couple of years, rather than just, I suppose, um, his attitude towards climate change? I, I think so. I think very much so that this was a repudiation um, of, of Scott Morrison and particularly his leadership, I think. Um, you have to remember that the Liberal Party, who are the conservative side of politics in this country, have been in power for, for nine years. There was probably a bit of an it's time factor and they... They only just scraped home three years ago in 2019. So this sort of this had been building, if you like. Uh, I, th I think that the the prime minister was keen to be seen as a really strong campaigner, but the, the campaign was fairly shallow and didn't focus on a lot of the issues. And I think one of the big big stories out of this election is just the 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 increase in the importance of the rise of the professional women vote. And there's been a really big backlash from professional women and women in general against this government or the then government. Uh, we've had this 
new phenomena where you know, in, in seats held by the Conservative Party for forever, for you know, nearly in some cases a century, um, they've lost to, not to the the opposition Labor Party, but to a new wave of what they call in teal independence, a, a, a locally funded, locally run campaigns. And they're all independent women. They're all professional women, and they've run really big community campaigns. And they tend to be in um, the, the harbour side of Sydney and in Melbourne's inner city, particularly. So these are wealthy, well-educated seats that have voted for the Conservatives for a long time, but are now saying enough's enough. And a, a lot of it has to do with the treatment of women, respect for women. Um, there was a couple of um, big scandals in, regarding um, rape allegations within the parliament, and, and there was some concern that the prime minister didn't address these properly or with enough force, with enough empathy. Empathy was a big issue too. But also, as you mentioned, climate um, has, has been a really big issue too. I mean, Scott Morrison was famed, wasn't he, for taking, I think, was it a lump of coal into parliament at one stage to, I suppose, uh, congratulate the coal industry in the country, wasn't he? And almost sort of dismiss um, those who were concerned about uh, climate change. Very much so. I think the thing to remember about Australia is we are a, we are a resource-rich country, so we, we, we dig up a lot of resources, including coal, and not just burn it, but we we export a lot of it. And so he took a lump of coal in to really goad the Labor opposition and say, don't be scared of that this is, you know, this is out of the ground and it's good for the economy. Um, but I think Australia's been racked by so-called climate wars, culture wars on, on climate change for a long time. It hasn't been a bipartisan issue. The conservative side of politics have been torn. You know, it's cost several leaders their jobs. Uh, and this is probably the latest. This feels like a, a moment in time where finally Australia might be just getting on with it. Um, and it's now making the, the defeated Liberals um, really reflect about how they go about this. The, the incoming Labor government, they're going to probably secure just a very slim majority, uh, have promised tougher action on climate change. Um, and, and I think that the thing that also cost the coalition is they just didn't engage enough with younger voters who are concerned about these issues. I mean, you mentioned there the teal wave, but there's also been this green wave, hasn't there? The surge of support for green candidates. I mean, what is it going to mean for climate policies in Australia? Because as you mentioned there, in the past, it has toppled, this issue has toppled Prime Ministers. Yeah, I, I think, and the Greens really should sneak under the radar, and that's one of the more fascinating stories out of this election. The Labor Party has won the election even with a 4% swing against them. So there is sort of a, um, a splintering of Australia's electoral system. You know, it's, it's, it's for a long time it's been a two-party system, if you like, but there is this rise of the teal independence. The Greens are getting more seats. I, I think it's, it's a real... Um, it's a moment in time where people said, OK, we're fed up with the political system. We're going to look for other voters. On the, in the, on the right side of politics, we've seen more sort of nationalist and populist parties also secure some vote. They're probably not going to pick up many seats, but there is definitely a move for change. Um, there's also the effects of the pandemic, um, a lot of protest votes. And I think both sides of politics have, have, have suffered in the sense that people were, were angry with, with government, be it state or federal, and, and, and were looking for other options. So I think perhaps... Australia is on the on the cusp. It should be worth noting that a lot of the state jurisdictions have been taking action on climate change a lot more seriously. They've been setting renewable energy targets and and getting on with it. It's been the federal government, which is you know who runs our you know foreign policy, that's been the sort of dragging their dragging their heels. Um, so we can say then that the Australian attitudes towards climate change, what people's perception of what they may be, that's pretty much been shattered. Then has it? 
Yeah, I think so. I th- I mean, there, there'll still be some people who are very resistant, and I think because of that culture, not the culture, that, that the fact we have an industry that is, you know, we're a resource-rich country and we export a lot of um, coal to other countries, there is a discussion, you know, there's no new coal power plants being built here at the moment, and they're the ones that are existing uh, have got a, a finite life. We, we've seen where I live, in, I'm in Melbourne, in Victoria, we've, we've seen power plants either close and others are threatening to close. So that transition is on. Um, it, it's it's what happens in, the, in that transition period, and that's okay. what's really torn governments apart. All right, Richard Willingham, we'll leave it there. Thank you for speaking to us, Gabby, very quickly. This is a country, you know, that's really uh, at risk from climate change, but in the past has been a complete laggard when it comes to its policies. Yeah, absolutely, and it's an issue that's facing every country throughout the world. I mean, I think it was really interesting to see this election um, because, of course, Scott Morrison was kind of branded as Trump-like candidate, and I think some of the stronger female voters didn't really have much of an interest, but I think it shows what can we actually learn, because climate, of course, is a really big challenge for the government. So I think in the coming months, and our own Green Party, you know, it's doing really quite poor in the polls, but I think it's going to be a huge talking point for the Government. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Gabia and to all of our guests. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram tonight at the MTV. From the Lit team here, do take care. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 